Circle. This is the Bunga Cast Reading Club 2023. We are into the second episode discussing Giovanni Origi's Adam Smith in Beijing, Lineages of the 21st Century, which came out in 2008, just before the global financial crisis. Um, an important little bit of uh, information because it talks about the long downturn of Western capitalism, the rise of China, and so on. Um, lots to get into there. Um, but, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to Phil, who's leading this. Hi, everyone. So just to say, um, in ad- apologies in advance to any viewers and listeners, because I'm still suffering from um, the tail end of a nasty um, virus. And so if I break out into a hacking cough or I have to cut off suddenly, either on camera or on mic, um, attribute it to that. It's not um, Alex's heavy-handed censorship, the brutish, the brutal regime of the podcast podcast editor there's um, enough, there's you can send in your that. tribute you can send in your tributes and condolences to, to on the patreon to phil r.i.p so as alex um, mentioned um this is a book where we chose to um be at the end of our reading list um in the book club for this year um i suppose for fairly obvious reasons given every how everyone is understanding the shift in power away from the states diffusion of power um the increased centrality of East Asia and China in particular to the global economy and what have you. And so we wanted to see how far Giovanni Origi's book, which is you know dated now, how far it still stacks up um, in light of uh, what's happening at the moment. And so before I get into before we get into section two, which is what we're discussing today, I want to just briefly recap um, the first part of the book to set us up for the following discussion. And also to address reader comments um, that were sent to us about the first part. Um, so the first part of the book, the first section is three chapters that set up essentially what will come subsequently. And it's where um, Arigi frames the world historic significance of East Asian growth and how that motivates um, going back to founding fathers of social science and political economy. Obviously, Adam Smith, who's in the title, but also um, Karl Marx and Joseph Schumpeter. Um, And so once that's established, um, he talks about the different ideas of economic expansion and growth and addresses the question of how far Smith, Adam Smith, um, his understanding of economic growth can be used to explain both economic divergence, which is to say the rise of the West in relation to the rest of the um, the rest of the world um, in the modern era, and also convergence, which is China's um, so-called return, I suppose, to center stage in world economy and also um, correspondingly in geopolitics. So the first part of the book um, introduces some of these themes, obviously. Uh, the second chapter in particular, 
offers a very different vision of Adam Smith from the one that might be familiar, I suppose, to those who only know him as the kind of free market guru or patron saint of um, some of the think tanks of the Beltway or London. And it gives a much more refined and sophisticated vision, both of his ideas and also of his um, the care with which he embeds his understanding of political economy into ideas of history um, and sociological institutions. And so that's essentially the content of the second chapter. He also introduces um, some key differences that will play out in subsequent chapters, um, such as the difference between the industrious revolution and the industrial revolution, the industrious revolution being economic growth in East Asia, which was... um, a kind of a slow incremental linear process of economic expansion founded on a labor intensive um, process of economic growth around household, essentially familial household production um, with a social division of labor, which is to say an economy organized around different sectors of society um, being involved in um, or contributing to economic growth around their and a social function. And that's in contrast to the Industrial Revolution, which is more familiar, I suppose, um, to most people. And that is the model of economic growth that propelled um, Western uh, supremacy over the last 200, 300 years, and which is the familiar process of um, constant, uninterrupted Um, disturbance or revolution in the means of production, as Marx put it, the substitution of technology for labor, compounding economic growth that is essentially limitless rather than um, plodding and incremental, and also more based on a technical division of labor, which is to say the specialization of functions that are internal to the production process or internal to the economic unit rather than being distributed across um, social function as a whole. And then the third chapter is um, of the first section called Marx, Schumpeter and the Endless Accumulation of Capital and Power, introduces essentially that idea of industrial revolution and um, the um, disruptive consequences that come in its wake, I suppose. Um, So to... Hopefully that's useful to remind our listeners as to listeners and viewers as to um, where we left it. And then just to quickly address some of the patron comments from our listeners that came through um, before we get into section two, which is the centerpiece of today's discussion. So JK, JK, um, I want to say JK, 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 but this says JK, 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 J. All right, JK, 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 J. Um, this, this is a different person to JK, JK, Yeah, JK, I'm JK. getting confused now. Maybe it is a different person or maybe not. Just a coincidence. There are completely unrelated people. <laughs> um, they've put forward something uh, which I've not read, I'm not familiar with, but is uh, sounds gen, you know, kind of genuinely a useful contribution to this discussion and also a must-read for anyone who's interested in these questions, which is um, they recommend a book called Miracle or Design? Question mark, Lessons from the East Asian Experience, a short book, 110 pages, and published before the Southeast Asian crash, the debt crisis of 1997. And it says that it's um, a written mostly on the successes and failures of Hong Kong, Japan, Taiwan, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, South Korea. Um, and JK, 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 J goes on. George's critique that, quote, the country that produces all the things is in the driver's seat is also of worth here because this is discussed 
in the book mentioned in regards to analyzing the value of political economy and supply chain management versus the Western focus on empty or misleading numbers and statistics. And so that goes into something that we touched upon in our last discussion with this question of um, how far does it matter where actual industrial production is located and how far that's connected to geopolitical changes, I guess, as opposed to just looking at the kind of overall um, abstract statistical indices and aggregates. Eli S. says, wait, did I just hear that Arigi claims Rontia's interests coincide with a general social interest? That's insane. Um, so to be clear, that's not Arigi directly. That's rather Arigi's rendering of Adam Smith. And it's what he says Adam Smith says with regards to landlords. And the fact that uh, it's not exactly that it coincides with the direct social interest so much as that they have less, that landlordism or rentiers have less incentive to disrupt the social interest given the kind of uh, structure or disposition of their economic function. Whereas merchants, um, those who are profit makers or profit dependent, have a constant interest to pull society's interest closer to theirs. And so it's Arigi's rendering of Adam Smith. Um, so just to finesse that point, Blake has a response to them where he says it still holds true in the modern world in extreme cases with reference to the Liz Trust government in the UK and how that was um, ousted essentially by the reaction of the markets to the budget that was put forward by the Trust government. Eli says, is Smith is imagining a primarily agricultural economy which I think it's fair to say, I mean, it's essentially it's an economy on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. So it's probably fair to say that he is. Um, he Eli says, OK, maybe that was a viable hypothesis, but in the modern world, it's completely nuts. Um, Afibanga Banga responded uh, and said, I guess this is Alex responding on behalf of Afibanga Banga here. <laughs> Nobody speaks uh, on, on behalf <laughs> of us, no yeah. one individual. It was a it was a Politburo statement. Yeah, I wonder if we have. I mean, so I mean, I've already kind of mentioned this, but um, I wonder if it's. Um, I wonder if it's. If do either, any of you, either of you, rather, have anything to say about this point that the frontier in today's society um, is more of a kind of a threat or is not necessarily complement their interests are not necessarily more complementary to those of the general social interest today. Yeah, I would say they run they're the ones who run in large part counter. I mean obviously when you say rentier you need people to think you're like landlords and things like that. And obviously kind of the asset capitalism is yeah. very contrary to popular living standards to continued growth and so on. But it's not just that. There's a big debate about whole other areas of the economy, especially in the very financialized economies, as most Western economies are, about the extent to which a lot of activities are rentierist or actually are productive of commodities. And there's questions even about, you know, big tech. A lot of people call them rentiers. They just accumulate these big data monopolies. Are they just rentiers or are they producing something new? There's a big debate there, right? Um, yeah. Although in either case, I think you would conclude that their interests are not especially in the interests of, of you know, kind of the national interest as a whole and certainly not in terms of working class interests. Yeah, I mean, Alex, the, the conversation that you had with Corey Doctoro was interesting in this regard because, you know, the point that he made was everyone wants to be a rentier. Like, why not? Like, oh, every capitalist, as soon as they 
as soon as they get any sort of um, market position, that's the, it's too easy. It must be a bad thing because, um, you know, capitalists want to want eventually to become, uh, to, to get this market position. Um, yeah. And it seems like, it seems like it's the most unproductive, um, position in society. You're not, you're not, I mean, you're not producing anything. You're not moving society forward. So you do have a, a very fundamental interest in preserving the status quo. Um, but I mean, is anybody defending landlords, defending rentiers? I mean, there must be, there must be some theoretical defenses of them. They can't be all, all bad eggs. They can't all be bastards, can they? No, it's a good question. Um, you know, it's traditionally, it's the area where kind of, um, neoliberal Hayekians and Marxists agreed was they united in their hostility to landlords precisely because of their lack of, um, productive kind of activity with regards to the economy. But it speaks to, I suppose, a very different vision of the economy. And this touches on Eli's point. If you have an essentially kind of um, uh, economy that's growing very slowly or is essentially a stable kind of status quo economy, then, you know, perhaps that's um, the landlord, the kind of the complacency of the landlord is um, to be encouraged. Whereas if you are interested in improvement in productive processes and the classical model of industrial revolution, industrial expansion. Um, and that requires um, innovation with all of its kind of uh, associated turmoil and disruption. Then it's a very different um, outlook on, on the role of landlords. Mm. And obviously Smith is talking, he isn't talking about people who own blocks of flats, right? I mean, he's talking about literal landlords, people who own the great estates still, you know, like in, in Scotland, he's talking about the Scottish aristocracy and in England too. Whereas now, if you talk about landlords, you mean, you know, the bastard who you pay rent to, or maybe like, um, you know, the kind of Qatari uh, sovereign wealth fund that owns your block of flats in London or BlackRock or whatever it might be. Although land is still very concentrated. The ownership of land in the UK is extremely concentrated. So it's just that it's not such a productive asset. So it matters less. Yeah, and obviously more less far fewer people live on it and agriculturally like you know their role matters that, very little. Yeah. No, yeah, that's what I mean. There's it's less productive. Yeah. Like, it's so, anyway, I mean I think you know I think we can it's something I'm sure we'll return to and we can leave it there, but it is um it, it is something which is an in, you know the kind of the how economic uh, position affects uh, social and political disposition is I think it's a you know I mean it's a fast, it's a basic fascinating question of social science and i suppose it's useful to be reminded that it was also something which was um you know it's not something which is specific to marxism even though it's very closely associated with marxism um in the modern modern times modern academy okay let's get stuck into um let's get stuck into section two yes oh. <laughs> let's yeah, apologies there, listeners. You wouldn't have seen me if you weren't watching. I had to take Ill illness some is water. weakness, Phil. You don't need that water. You need to <coughs> use the water that's already inside you to hydrate yourself. I wasn't gonna I'm not gonna reply with what the first thing that came to my mind was, but I'll save it maybe for next time. Okay. All right. So um this section, the whole section, second part of the book, is essentially outlining um the Brenner thesis of 
the economics of global turbulence, which is um, the reference to the Brenner book, um, and Arigi's uh, qualifications, criticisms, um, and reservations about it. Um, so I just want to kind of talk through some of the main points, and uh, George and Alex, feel free to kind of throw anything in if you think I've missed it. I just want to kind of sketch out skate over, I suppose, the three chapters before extracting a few core points, which I think are be useful and productive to talk about in more depth. So in chapter four, it talks introduces some of the basic points, which is um, how much of the discussion is hinged around comparison between the two great downturns, um, that of the late 19th century, which was the first period to be called the Great Depression, in fact. And when you had the, um, uh, it was a period of deflation, a period of intense, uh, intensely competitive um, cutthroat, I suppose, economic expansion. And so that economic, and in this period, economic expansion becomes far more competitive as a result of the pressures um, introduced by the downturn and how that stacks up or compares or contrasts with the downturn of the 1970s and um, their similarities and differences. And I suppose the question kind of hanging over that then is also the downturn since 2008, how far that Though this was obviously, this is um, after Rigi wrote the book, but it's the question which would obviously kind of float over this comparison. He introduces the concept of an even development, which in Brenner's terms is the dynamic of rivalry and competition between a center, the center of industrial expansion and economic growth, and those countries that catch up. So in the late 19th century, that with the laggards catching up would be primarily the US and Germany, catching up with um, industrial Britain. And in the 1970s, it's post-war Germany and Japan catching up with the US as the linchpin of the global economy. And so the dynamic of competition between those economic poles is central, according to um, according to Brenner, in terms of what drives these long periods of downturn. And Arigi summarizes this in terms of um, which is to say he summarizes Brenner's thesis in terms of too much entry and not enough exit. So you have this problem of um, competition and overproduction, which is never properly resolved. So you have all the laggards as a result of an even development. You have an influx of new competitors into particular parts of the market, particular sectors of the economy. and But however, they fail to drive out the... Um, existing um, incumbents within that particular economic space. And according to Brenner, this results in a vicious a vicious circle, essentially, which is discussed on um, page 106. And in Brenner's, this is Arigi now uh, talking, quote, in Brenner's conceptualization of world capitalism, there is no spontaneous market mechanism that will prevent overcapacity from developing in a large number of industries or from becoming a chronic feature of the world economy. Higher cost incumbent firms have both the means and the incentive to resist exit from overcrowded industries, while overcapacity and falling profits do not necessarily discourage new entry. 
And then he talks through the mechanisms by which um, higher cost incumbents can resist exit um, and how they confront the challengers. And that the process, in the process of confronting the challengers, they end up contributing to the same problem, which again is um, overcapacity. Um, and um, overextension within all of within the relevant industries. I mean, he, it's important to say that obviously the the um, consequence. I mean, the reason why overcapacity matters is because it ags it, it drags down profit rates, right? And, and yeah, it, leads to a kind of general downturn. Um, yeah, that's the that's the kind of reason behind it. It's not just overcapacity in and of itself. No, indeed, yeah. Um, thank you. So he talks through how the there's the attempted displacement through the end of the Bretton Woods system and the Nixon administration, which is going off the gold standard, taking the dollar off the gold standard of the 1970s, was an attempt to reboot the competitiveness of um, American industry um, by allowing the dollar to float freely against rival currencies and so effectively displaced the problems of the American economy onto its rival economies. And this is um, this is discussed across um, the following pages. He they also talks about the Plaza Accords of the mid-1980s and then the reverse Plaza Accords of the mid-1990s, by which, again, was the efforts of the Reagan administration and subsequently the Clinton administration to manage the kind of the backwash and after effects of floating exchange rates, economic expansion, and the way in which um, the American economy started sucking in enormous amounts of um, finance from abroad in order to subsidize effectively what was uh, the Keynesian stimulus, according to Origi and Brenner, the Keynesian stimulus of um, the Second Cold War. Just to add a, a, a note here also, what's interesting in talking through kind of the Plaza Accords of the mid-80s um, and then you know, also these reverse Plaza Accords of the, of the late, of, of the mid-90s under Clinton um, is that, you know, you've basically got these three players, the US, Germany, and Japan. And because there's a sort of zero-sum game, there's not a, it's not a positive-sum game where they're all able to keep growing and keep economically expanding and not eating into each other. Um, there needs to be some sort of burden sharing of this overcapacity, and that's achieved through devaluations or revaluations of relative currencies so um first the u.s devalues and that helps its exports and then it convinces you know the other japan to devalue to help its export and it kind of gets balanced out but there's an argument you say well why don't these countries just come to more direct confrontation you know why why do um germany and japan kind of suck it up right to help out the u.s economy and it's like well the important thing is that they're the defeated axis powers and then and yeah, u.s has loads of bases in these countries you're, preempting, and guarantees their you're security. preempting the discussion a bit because oh i didn't um, realize we we're going to get onto that sorry yeah i mean that's one of the things um that's central to brenner's sorry to Origi's critique of brenner is how much is politics and how much is economics um oh that's what you meant by that okay yeah so, that's what you're you're gesticulating at this but fair enough okay uh, so in hundred on page one hundred and ten, the Plaza Accords is um, seen as essentially being in the same in the same vein as what the Nixon administration did: um, a radical devaluation of the dollar while stepping up protectionist and market opening measures. Um, and then the reverse Plaza Accords, so called, are discussed subsequently. Um, so the core of the Brenner thesis is outlined on page one one five. The central thesis is that the persistence of relative stagnation in the world economy at large over the last 30 years has been due 
to too little exit and too much entry, too little and too much, that is, relative to what would be required in order to restore profitability in manufacturing to the level it had attained during the long boom of the 1950s and 1960s. Brenner traces this tendency to the mutually reinforcing action of the behavior of higher cost incumbent firms and the policies of the governments of the world's three largest economies. And the point being here, right, that the specific character, the strength of incumbents, the specific nature of the interaction of the three leading governments in question, the US, Germany and Japan, mean that the world economy at large is prevented from purging through standard capitalist methods, bankruptcy, downsizing and layoffs. So you get over, you get this constant, um, the effects of stagnation coming from this uh, competitive dynamics of an even development, but without any of the uh, reinvigorating effects that you would expect from kind of classical capitalist crises of shuttering, shutting industries down, closing factories and what have you. So uh, the following chapter, chapter five, moves on to the social dynamics of global turbulence. And this essentially talks about um, the role of labor and addresses Arigi's dispute with Brenner's account of the role of labor. So according to Arigi, Brenner does not um, give sufficient weight to the role of labor in um, driving some of these pressures precisely because the working class was in a position to defend its um, was in a position to defend its living standards, and according to Brenner, it's this the union organisation and their degree to which they are integrated into the state management of the economy in the sixties and seventies is explains certain features of the era which Brenner is unable to explain. Um, in particular, stagflation, just to say where you get low growth with inflation. And he says you can only really account for inflation by looking at the role of the labor force um, in this era. He, Across the course of the chapter, he mentions some other things which are um, important. Uh, for instance, uh, Bran- um, getting the two confused, I have to be careful, Arigi, talks about the relocation hypothesis not being as significant as is normally made out. This idea of capital being um, very easily mobile, that it can kind of um, take root wherever it likes. He says that's overstated in terms of its significance and effect. He claims that um, monetarism, the policies of tight credit that were associated with Milton Friedman and um, Friedrich Hayek to a lesser extent, the the financial policies of the Reagan administration and the Thatcher government in the UK, that these, according according to Irigi, were responses to third world revolt more than they were to managing intercapitalist competition and specifically to um, the um, willingness of third world countries in the wake of the oil shock to revise terms of trade in there to negotiate harder with Western corporations to revise terms of trade in their favor. He talks about also the differences between Britain's supremacy in the world economy and America's supremacy and the fact that in that Britain's control of India in the 19th century meant that Britain was in a stronger position um, to manage the world economy and manage world politics um, without needing to uh, without needing to bear the social and economic costs of doing so because it could outsource them basically to India. Unlike America in the 1970s, where because it didn't have an equivalent 
um, India colonial possession to provide the troops and to provide the tax base and the um, extra balance of payments to kind of buffer all the shocks of managing the world economy meant that America was forced into the inflationary policies that you saw um, under the Carter and Nixon administrations as they sought to um, crush the Vietnamese communists. Um, this so- is an important point. Yeah, just just to kind of, um, uh, in case listeners haven't and viewers haven't read this. Yeah, I think it is a really important one that Britain was able to basically like outsource the costs here to colonial subjects. So the, the metropolitan subjects are, are fine and the colonial subjects are not fine. <laughs> and this this gives an entirely different um, kind of political complexion to the um, to the economic challenge presented to to Britain in the former period and America in the in the latter period, and I think it's one of the points at which I started. I know we're going to come on to Team Brenner or Team Arigi, but this is one of the points where I was uh, I was feeling um, <clears throat> Arigi was making some good some good uh, blows against Brenner. Yeah, um, so um, he talks about the uh, centrality. Uh, he kind of disputes, Arigi takes issue with Brenner's the centrality that Brenner records to manufacturing um, in his story of the rhythm of economic expansion and contraction and stagnation. Um, Arigi making the case that uh, other sectors of the economy need to, particularly given the changing structure of the econo- of the US economy, the shift towards services and financialization needs to be taken into account more than Brenner does. Um makes the point also about how important um, the capital, the ability of the U.S. to suck in capital from abroad was to the U.S. winning the Cold War. Um, So it's not necessarily kind of the economic strength of the U.S. that allowed it to outpace the USSR, but the simple fact that it was at the center of a capitalist economy. So you could shift capital around within it. And so effectively, Japan ended up subsidizing the increased defense spending of the Reagan administration, allowing it to outcompete the USSR, which was obviously a more um, autarkic economy. Um, anyway, so those are some of the kind of, uh, that's the story that goes through uh, chapter five. And then in chapter six, uh, entitled The Crisis of Hegemony, and this is the last chapter of section two, um, Arigi begins to introduce more of his own uh, theory, kind of building up to what will be a more complete picture of it in the third section of the book. Um, But essentially, he makes the case that um, it's it's politics that's lacking from Brenner's account, and specifically, one of the key differences being that in the in the post-war period. Uh, Unlike the 1870s to the 1890s, the first kind of great downturn of the modern global economy, um, that the uneven development is a politically managed process. So, which is to say that whereas in the late 19th century, the US and Germany kind of catch up with Britain as a result of their um, indigenous kind of uh, dynamics of industrialization in the post-war period in the 60s and 70s, the Germany and Japan catching up with the US is something which is undertaken under the leadership and under the uh, kind of uh, security provided by the US itself. And so as a result of this distribution of power, um, Arigi wants to make the claim that uh, the politics is a much more important part 
of uneven development than Brenner is willing to admit to. Um, so for Brenner, while it's, uh, you know, kind of it's large incumbent industrial firms associated with certain industrial centers in the global economy, Arigi's making the case that when you, by the time you reach the mid 20th century, it's impossible to think in those terms unless you're willing to give greater scope to the role that U.S. power plays in allowing for German and Japanese reindustrialization. So he wants to make the case in chapter six for politics from above driving the process. And once you've conceded that, according to Arigi, then many other things kind of um, follow and um, flow um, have to be accommodated into the picture. So we'll talk a bit more about some of these themes, but um, so he talks through that story of the different kind of characteristics of um, the collapse of Bretton Woods, the nature of the U.S. hegemony, um, the different ways in which the U.S. tries to restore its power and authority throughout the 1970s, leading up to the new, the so-called new Belle Epoque. Um, so the same way that the great downturn of the late 19th century ended in this kind of glorious period um, of, uh, I suppose, um, economic growth, um, social slow kind of social progress, um, benefits for the working class in the late 19th century, the Belle Epoque. Um, I suppose if I was trying to think of a single image that would capture the Belle Epoque, and in my perhaps uh, you know insufficiently historically informed mind, it's the Moulin Rouge. It's the Moulin Rouge and um, the Telegraph and the Eiffel Tower. Uh, those are the kind of images that come to mind of the late 19th century Belle Epoque. And according to Arigi, so we enter this period of a latter-day Belle Epoque from the 1980s to the 1990s. But it's on it. It has to reach its terminal crisis, according to Arigi. And he talks about some of the processes um, that are associated with economic restructuring, um, how in, in place of the emergence of um, large concentrations, these enormous economic behemoths across the 19th and 20th centuries, where you have integration, vertical integration across the supply chain, horizontal integration by um, mergers and acquisitions. From the 1970s onwards, you get this deconcentration of economic power through the development of subcontracting, outsourcing, more network-based forms of economic activity, rather than the um, enormous kind of concentrations of the, I suppose, associated with the classical era of monopoly capitalism. And he finishes the chapter by on the contrasting two paradigmatic um, exemplars of the two periods. One is General Motors, which was um, the kind of, you know, taken as the exemplar of American industrial might manufacturing the automobile, but was also just, you know, with one or two exceptions, was essentially an American company in the sense that it... Um, not only grew the American economy, but was also essentially embedded within it. Um, and that's where its primary market was um, and where its primary production chains and processes were. They were all, like, for the most part, located in the States, in contrast to Walmart, which is the latter-day example of this um, enormous business model, which is um, not only um, more, I suppose, um, more brutal with respect to managing its labor relations, um, its customer, it's in the service sector of the economy rather than the productive area of the economy, selling um, 
you know, selling uh, goods, supermarkets and so on, but it's also integrated into global supply chains in a different way compared to General Motors and far more diffused and network rather than being embedded in a kind of national economy in the way that General Motors was. So that's a kind of a whistle-stop tour of Section 2. Um, I don't know if you guys, if there's anything you guys want to briefly add before we extract some themes to talk through. Um, no, there's a, a lot there. I think it's it's a nice note to finish on. Like Arigi does have a good um, a good way of occasionally kind of capturing things in a nice nice kind of succinct way. And this movement from you know General Motors making stuff, Walmart essentially sourcing stuff from from East Asia and, and distributing it. It's a nice kind of um, way to finish part two before going on to part three. But no, there's obviously a lot to talk about, but. I'll let you introduce the. Uh, uh, you could say Joe Origi with the last minute winner there. Joe uh, Origi with the last minute winner. Some people will get that. Anyway, if let's you, move if on. If you know, you know. I suppose I wanted to say that the I think the essential question for the reader um, here, the reader of the book, um, at least this is the way I want to frame it, is whether you're Team Brenner or Team Origi. Now we can't kind of, um, needless to say, we don't we can't and we don't propose to resolve, um, you know, the Brenner thesis um, in our discussion. So all we are doing here, if we're side, if we're Team Brenner or Team sorry, Team Renner, Team Brenner or Team Rigi, is deciding whether we find um, Arigi's critique of Brenner persuasive or not, essentially, or whether you know it's logically flawed or there is evidence that we have in light of the last 20 years or evidence that Arigi doesn't account for that would suggest Brenner's thesis is still strong in ways that Origi yeah. doesn't account for. So it's only to say this is what I'm going to be using to frame our discussion, Team Brenner or Team Origi. Yeah, I would I would just say, though, we're definitely playing on Origi's, the Origi team's home pitch here, right? Because how often do you have a, you read a book where somebody's presenting a critique of, of something and you end up sympathizing more with the thing that's being critiqued than the person kind of, you know, making the critique. So I think it's just worth... Frequently, worth, frequently. Well, I was trying to think of the last time this happened and, you know, don't want to sound too highfalutin, but in Paradise Lost, like Milton presents, you're supposed to not sympathize with with Satan, um, or maybe he was of the devil's party without knowing it, Milton, but yeah, not very often, right? Because normally it's it's either, I, you know, I'm going to cherry pick all the worst things that this person said and show that they're an idiot, or I have some good arguments against them, or I'm just going to misrepresent them. So I'm just, I just wanted to put in a point for, yeah, I mean, for Brenner that they're Brenner that, team that they're playing yeah. away in this, in this. Video. That's fair. Thank I you just, for another football reference. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, you make, you make a point. I mean, I think also that we can be more generous to Origi. You know, he does, I think he does, um, he gives Brenner a good shout. He's not uh, ungenerous in his, Away, and he certainly doesn't. I don't think he straw mans Brenner, even if it's ultimately no. maybe unconvincing in parts. But I don't think he mischaracterizes crudely. I mean, so I think a lot of the things that Arigi raises are maybe shortcomings of Brenner, or things Brenner has overlooked or simplified, um, but which are not incommensurable, right? So you can 
add a Rigi and tack it on to the story Brenner tells without undermining Brenner's core thesis necessarily. Yeah, I'm not sure you can. The, I mean, wait, I suppose we'll come on so, to this. Anyway, I mean, some things, you, this is what I'm saying, some things you can, other things you, you can't. Um, some might undermine the central thesis, right? Um, I think I the one, make... the, I just wanted to draw attention yeah, to one on. thing about on, on which I thought was quite fun, really fundamental, really very deeply fundamental, is that the whole long downturn argument that Brenner makes is that you have this overcapacity and that what needs to happen normally is you have a great big shakedown of unemployment, uh, businesses going under, et cetera, right? Um, and that this is like the normal order of capitalism. And then when you don't have that happening, such as maybe more recently, um, where you don't have this great big crisis shaking everything out, then you have this um, continuing overcapacity and slowdown in growth, right? But the one point that Arigi makes is really um, like, mm, yeah, okay, I need to, I need to figure out what exactly I think on this. Is that he points out there's only actually been one really big crisis that follows the Brenner model of a great big shakedown, and that's the 1930s, um, 1930s Great Depression, and all the, all the other examples are much more. Um, attenuated and not the kind of shakedown necessary. So it, that kind of interrupts Brenner's story. If if the thing he says this always has to happen has only happened once. Yeah, I mean it is one of those things, right? It, it's um, it's only ever happened once. On the other hand, like when you're talking about events of this magnitude, it's not, and you're talking about the modern period you know, particularly that associated with the Industrial Revolution, you're talking about 300 years at most, if that, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I take the point. And also that, I mean, the other point that Ariki makes with respect to the Great Depression of the 1930s is, again, that politics intersects with it in a way that might not be, that the Brenner thesis might not be amenable to, because the specific configuration or the disintegration of the world economy in the 1920s and 30s takes the form of world war. Whereas the kind of the um, economic rivalries um, subsequent to world, the, that period of the world wars, um, they've never, thus far at least, they've never been expressed in a kind of, you know, planetary, a planetary conflict, essentially. And uh, thankfully... Because yeah, I think if we if we had another one, it would be, I mean, I would not predict it Lights would be out. very much fun. No, it wouldn't be very much fun, and obviously, you would it would be, um, you know, the likelihood of it going nuclear would add an entirely new dimension to it as well. Um, so, but the point being, right, that the um, again that there is kind of a political inflections of these dynamics that Brenner doesn't account for, according to Arigi. Anyway, I wanted to roll back a bit though first, because um, this idea of uh, the Belle Epoque or, you know, what was in America called the Gilded Age, that we've seen the close of another one. And I suppose, you know, so that would be for my students that they would have caught the tail end of it in their childhood, because most of my students are born around the year 2000 at the moment, say. Um, whereas for us, you know, um, or, I mean, I'm, I know, I'm, I, I know, like, um, I look, I'm actually, I'm older than I look actually, because I know I look quite youthful. <laughs> but you're younger than you're, than you come across with your crankish 70 year old well, opinions. So. But indeed they're not crankish. They're coming back in George. But anyway, mm -hmm. so the 20, um, but that Belle Epoque, I guess, 
um, would be, you know, the first perhaps 30 years, I would say maybe, um, I mean, for me, you know, I can, I suppose I wanted to open this up and I want to hear what listeners and viewers think as well, but this idea of the Belle Epoque, um, he gives certain characteristics of it. I mean, he's comparing it as, according to Arigi, it's the, um, you know, it's the kind of the resolution of a downturn period, of a long downturn period, and that it has certain kinds of characteristics. But I wondered if we could flesh out what those characteristics are. So for Arigi, you know, one of them is specifically this, um, the dynamics of uh, kind of economic competition. And in the 70s and 80s in particular, it's um, particularly associated with financialization. And so everyone will be familiar with the cliches of kind of yuppie life, bankers, um, the growth of kind of financial centers and whatnot um, in major cities in the West. But I wondered if there are other kind of telling characteristics, um, from, even from our own experience, that might be useful to flesh out this idea of a latter-day Belle Epoque, and if we can say that it did indeed end in 2008. What do you guys think? Well, it's a good question. You know, it's a good question to try to put, yeah. But the, also, you know, where are you um, drawing the lines? Because, you know, Arigi suggests that the Belle Epoque starts in 1993, more or less, right? That the that the neoliberal counter-revolution, and I know we're going to come on to that specific issue in a second, that begins in 1993 when the kind of neoliberalism starts working, right? Effectively, it's worked out the the problems of the 1970s and it starts paying off. Um, and, you know, I guess that runs until 2008. But of course, you know, you have the dot-com bubble and bust then. So I think that would be maybe characteristic of um, the boom of that, of our, you know, end of century Belle Epoque becoming also prone to bubbles. Um, so that's that's one yeah. thing. Um, the other thing is that when we think of like the the kind of effusiveness and um, you know market bubbles and and um, asset price inflation, a lot of things that immediately come to my mind at least are things that come after the global financial crisis, not before. So after the global financial crisis, because of the rescues um, that you get huge influxes of money into global capitals, world capitals, you know everywhere you get ridiculous inflation everywhere from you know from Vancouver to Dubai to Moscow to London, etc. Um, and Again, that's a feature that comes after the crash. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. Though, I mean, they were already property price. I mean, you know, it's not like property was cheap in London before the crash. I mean, no, and you had the big the Spanish boom. Was and, yeah, Spanish construction boom, U.S. construction boom, etc. So I mean, in, initially, it just doesn't seem plausible to me that we that I may have lived through a Belle Epoque period. I mean. Obviously, that that image, Phil, that you had of like the Moulin Rouge and, you know, everyone drinking champagne. Yeah. In either either in, you know, America or in in France or wherever, they're just drinking champagne all the time and they're kind of living living the high life. So there is, a you know, one way in which it's resolved is through conspicuous consumption and just a general cultural vivacity, if you want to put it that way. Um, and so it's make it like is the argument here that you know, this period of like, say, 1993 to 2008, that this is, this is the same. Um, what, what happened at that point, you know, Britpop, is this what we're going to like, compare eventually to, to the Moulin Rouge? I mean, it, it seems like uh, that's my initial reaction. But then at the same time, maybe this will become a period that that will be nostalgic for well, the, sooner the or later. Is, the, the thing is, is that, you know, when you're telling I mean, a story, are, right? It, Nobs. It, if you know, yeah. How, yeah. Well, but if you know how the story ends, right? That that character, that that um, 
paints or imparts a kind of tone to how you understand the story. You know that the Belle Epoque ends with the First World War, the Ur disaster of the 20th century. Um, whereas, you know, we know that the long 90s Belle Epoque ends with the global financial crisis, which, you know, as bad as that was, it was not the First World War. So to a certain extent, the glamour of the Belle Epoque is accentuated by the fact that it ends in World War in the mud of um, yeah. Flanders, right? That's a really yeah. good point. They were doomed and they were partying before they were doomed. Maybe we were listening to Blur and Oasis before we were doomed by the... Or LCD sound system or whatever. Or the, you know, yeah, the, that's yeah. actually better. Listening to Losing My Edge and just before the global financial crisis took all the opportunities away or whatever. It's. I mean, you make a good point, Alex, because the era of cheap... I mean, you know, like um, historically it was an era of low inflation and low interest rates prior to 2008. And it's something that Origi says. I mean, that was the deliberate policy of Alan Greenspan, the um, this kind of... The, chairman of the you know the chairman of the fed who is um you know and whatever happened to him he's kind of it's remarkable like that such a central and important figure of that period was barely it seems barely spoken about anymore and i remember how the world hung on his utterances for so long anyway um you know that era of cheap money has kind of produced all sorts of um um after effects of this kind of new belle epoque um, in all all sorts of different ways. I mean, at least kind of the rise of um, companies, non-profit companies like uh, Uber or, um, you know, for a long time, Amazon. Non-profitable, or, um, yeah. just Yeah, non, you know, kind of Netflix, as well as kind of helping to subsidize an enormous kind of NGO class based on philanthropy or outsourcing or whatever it might be. So, I mean, the cheap, you know, the kind of era of cheap money, which has just ended, is um, an interesting after effect. I mean, looking back, I suppose, you know, is there anything else about the era of the Belle Epoque, which... Um, but I, I, I like that. I, I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. That this, not just the third sector, but a, a huge range of professional jobs, which David Graeber classified as, you know, bullshit jobs. Um, the sustaining of all those, of an incorporation of a, a layer of the middle class, if not the entirety of the middle class, um, into you know a fairly high consumption lifestyle in in capitals that is I think would be a feature you know looking back at of the Belle Epoque. Um although yeah, again like, it, again it kind of it I'm not going to say it accelerates after the global financial crisis the global financial crisis bifurcates that um, you know that yeah, phenomenon in yeah, two yeah. so some people end up downloading mobile whereas the professionals who make it um, what Benjamin Studebaker calls the rump professionals um, who who remain up there um, yeah. and I'd like that you know. Or you leave, right? If you're in, if you're in Greece or Spain or Italy, you yeah. leave. What's what's, right? a, so you go what's north. a what's a rump professional? Is that like a proctologist? Um, <laughs> but there's a difference that Arigi would. There's thanks. Uh, there's a difference that Arigi would um, would cite here, an important one that the the earlier downturn of of seven of eighteen seventy three to ninety six is different to the newer one of seventy of nineteen seventy three to ninety three because of this the fact of colonialism that we we mentioned before or Phil mentioned I kind of jumped on that point because I guess that really determines the standard of living whether you can externalize um costs and so any thing which follows after that is going to have a really different character for you know for the people experiencing it so I guess you know is that a point in is that a, is that a score for Team Arigi, even in this discussion of the Belle Epoque, because yeah, that difference does seem does seem to be like how things can be, how costs can be externalized, and then periods afterwards would be 
different um, must be must be relevant here. I, I so surely. there is, um, you know, like uh, I think in terms of good times, you know, it's I mean, it's it's um, it's not an original point, but it is one that's worth restating is the, you know, it's cheap white goods from China funded by credit cards. Right. I mean, that was essentially insofar as the Belle Epoque enabled a certain higher standard of living. It was um, not based on wage growth, but based on cheap credit. Um, and it's, again, historically low interest rates, um, you know, kind of remortgaging your house and whatnot. So all of that was... Um, all of that was part of it. Um, the, I mean, uh, in my head, the, in my head, what sums up the Belle Epoque is what you told me, George, when I moved out of, um, when I moved out of London some years back and was thinking about if it would be possible to move back into London, you told me like, it's, um, it's basically, it's basically um, pubs filled with wankers where you're paying five pound pints. And this was um, this was some years ago, so I think the pints are probably closer to ten pounds, around the eight pound mark now. They're probably still filled with wankers, um, but I think that's kind of the, my image of what the Belle Epoque is was basically, kind of overpriced pints in city bars. Um, isn't that wasn't that the Belle Epoque? Yeah. For yeah. once, I can give George credit for. Um, I'm sorry, of... I I'm sorry, I blocked your your chance to to move to the big city with the kind of the stick and the bundle. Um, and to make it <laughs> on your own. Um, I'm sorry I discouraged you from your dreams. But yeah, I mean, maybe that is it. Maybe that is it, you know, first as tragedy, then as farce or whatever. But yeah, I mean, <clears throat> do you know if you've lived through a Belle Epoque? Um, yeah, maybe you, maybe you don't. You maybe only retrospectively. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a question to, um, it's a question I'd be interested to hear more from, you know, from our listeners and viewers. I have some more thoughts also on the point about imperialism and the role it plays. Um, but we can maybe save that for another, save that for a discussion of section three, because it will come back. Um, the thing which I wanted to mention is because um, Arigi does this in a fairly offhand way. Um, and it's, he's not the only one to do it. It's frequently um, framed in these terms when the period of the 70s and 80s are discussed. This idea of a neoliberal counter-revolution, in scare quotes. So he doesn't kind of um, theorize this explicitly. He doesn't talk about it in great detail. It's simply the shorthand that he uses to uh, refer to the... Um, the monetarist policies of, like I mean, we said before, the Reagan administration in particular, um, policies of tight credit leading to the capital drought and the subsequent debt crises in the developing world, um, as well as the um, employers' offensive against the working class in the US. And so he calls this a neoliberal counter-revolution. I wondered if we should you know, accept this casual designation? Does it matter or do we concede something in accepting it as a counter-revolution? Because it seems to me that we might. Mm -hmm. I, I'm always, I'm, I'm torn on this personally. And I've, I've referred to it as counter-revolution many times before in a very casual way, you know, and, and every time I say it, I'm like, I'm not sure that's right, but let's just go with that because I'm not going to dwell on it. Um, you know, there is something seemingly revolutionary about neoliberalism in terms of the break that it marks with the preceding period. You know, I think it's very important to capture what a dramatic change it is. At the same time, you know, counter-revolution presupposes that the kind of Keynesian Fordist kind of post-war settlement is, was revolutionary somehow. And I think that's where you're like, I'm not really sure that's right because it's a grand compromise between classes. It's not revolutionary. 
So then the other alternative, the other solution, the other way that people refer to neoliberalism is to use a Gramscian term, passive revolution. And I'm not sure that entirely fits either. I'm interested in George's thought on this as a kind of Gramsci expert here. Um, but, you know, the, it's kind of a passive revolution as elites passing these reforms from above to maintain their control kind of in the face of, um, you know, social unrest. And I'm not sure that's entirely satisfactory either, um, although it does capture the kind of revolutionary nature, I guess, of of the of of, uh, of neoliberalism. Or, you know, maybe revolutionary is not the right word, but just the the fact that it's a great big change. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I think, you, you you know, you put that very well, that for something to be counter-revolutionary, it has to follow a revolution and it has to, you know, it, it, it's making, it's inflating the claims of, I guess, post-war social democracy. Um, in terms of this idea of passive revolution, Graham Shaw's has, has this idea of revolution and restoration. I mean, is it a restoration? That's also a kind of, I guess, a, a backward-looking term in the sense of saying, well, what preceded post-war social democracy is it actually a return to the class, the, the balance of forces or the balance of class forces prior to prior to that. And then you'd actually have to go back, not just to the war, but before the war. And I guess it's all it's all a question of what is the, what is your model of what's kind of quote-unquote normal or, you know, which is then departed from with a revolution in social democracy and then a counter-revolution in neoliberal terms i mean i think i i almost certainly have called it neoliberal counter-revolution but it i don't know but restoration they, sounds a lot better i think it, yeah you know, restoration sounds a lot more like the but i think but then even that understates it right because the point is you can't restore i mean you can't restore the period of nine you can't restore liberalism right i mean that's so to call it even restoration would be to concede again to the fantasy that you could restore it, which is what the neoliberals hope for, but obviously, you know, have failed. This is evident now. So, no, but it's a restoration of class power, right? I think that's the point of of, of kind of um, unilateral class power, um, whereas previously it was shared with you know working class and its representatives in the post. The neoliberal neo restoration. Uh, that's just a horrible phrase more, though yeah maybe one too many years and the other thing was i think that it i mean the other thing which i think it um, this idea of counter-revolution it overstates its kind of reactionary character um because precisely and and also its ability to and this is very evident to us now i think perhaps less so to people in the 1980s um or in the 1990s with thatcher and reagan so prominent in their minds Bomi, but it was also its ability to absorb um, some of the most appealing kind of aspects of the left, such as um, the left's hostility, say, to nationalism and the nation state. And that was fully absorbed yeah. in kind of neoliberal globalism. The appeal, it basically confiscated um, or I suppose borrowed from the old internationalist appeal of the left and synthesized that into a new kind of vision of um, globalist cosmopolitanism. Or even, I mean, you know, like, I mean, this was or, mentioned. Or even if, if we're talking about revolution, the cultural revolution, you know, neoliberalism ad absorbs yeah. that. I wanted to say, like, I mean, you know, this was this was raised way back in um, episode 180 when we do, had um, two guests, Mark Simpson and River Page on. And Mark Simpson, um, uh, having been around in this period, he says, you know, like we were all Thatcherites back in the 80s. And he's referring to... Um, young gay guys who kind of left provincial areas in order to um, kind of find individual freedom to make their lives in, in larger cities and to take advantage of the kind of the punk ethos 
um, that was associated with Margaret Thatcher's uh, disruption of the post-war consensus. So it had a kind of, um, you know, it's important to, if you want to understand neoliberalism, it's important to under, un, appreciate its liberatory character um, in a way that I think counter, counter-revolution also underestimates. Um, because it suggests that it's kind of um, uh, old-fashioned classical reaction of, I don't know, kind of buttoned-up clerics and military officers or something, when obviously it was a much kind of more significant political and social movement. I suppose a more um, a question of Team Arigi and Team Brenner, and one that's uh, more significant for um, Brenner Arigi's critique of Brenner is the claim on page one three one, where Arigi accuses Brenner of carving out the global South, which is to say, you know, the bulk of humanity, and what in the period that Brenner's talking about is still in many ways kind of. Um, agrarian, poor, um, extractive economies rather than industrial economies. And Arigi says it's simply illegitimate to confine your understanding of the global economy to a handful of industrial centers and to ignore essentially the rest of it. And I wanted to ask, um, and this is hinged around, I should say, this is hinged around Arigi's point that you can't understand the long downturn without understanding America's attempt to contain um, the insurgency in Vietnam. And so the inflationary spending that America was required to engage in in order to um, maintain its welfare warfare state in the 1960s and 70s in the course of the Vietnam War, that you can't understand the long downturn without understanding that struggle to contain third world nationalism. And so I wondered what we made of it. What do you guys make of it? Is it you know, can you just say the world economy is essentially, you know, I can count it on the fingers, its main kind of nodes on the fingers of one hand. And if the rest of the world falls out of that, you're tough. Is that legitimate as a move? It, it's, it's, it's conjuncturally legitimate, right? It, like it, it make it, that might be legitimate in a certain place and time or the time, the place is earth, but, um, you know, at a certain time, the question is in the 1970s, cause this is basically what we're talking about, right? Um, they were talking about Brenner's thesis about the long downturn of about overcapacity. So we're talking about the period, you know, from the sixties through to the nineties, um, and whether excluding the third world and, and you know, the, the South, you know, as, as Rigi calls it would then be larger economies like brazil and mexico and then you know eventually china obviously but that would be today um to a certain extent the kind of tiger economies of southeast asia i guess would be included in the south but i'm not sure um brenner builds his model it's worth saying or builds his thesis no they would i mean he makes the point right he makes the point that even if you exclude china the extent of industrial growth throughout the world is still significant. So it's not just industrialization of East Asia, but like you have industrial growth in other parts of the world yeah. too. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a story, you know, there's an alternative timeline where without the debt crisis of the eighties, that though that excluding the South really makes no sense, but the progress of those of, of, of the South gets very severely interrupted in, in the 1980s. And as a consequence, you know, by the, by the nineties, you can say, yeah, it actually makes total sense to just talk about, 
you know, Germany, Japan, and the US. Um, and, you know, Brenner b- builds his thesis on those three blocks. And each each of those are important nodes in kind of regional networks as well. Germany is the most important economy in, in, in Europe and J- Japan and East Asia. Um, he Arigi makes his point in part by referring to the volume of, of exports and the relative share of exports. And those three account for only 60%, something like that. And so he goes, well, you know, you're excluding the rest. I, I think it I think what Brenner does is, is fairly legitimate in the time that he's talking about right now China is not a is not a relevant force in that period um, and the there is yeah, a but point you could, there's a you could you could do the same now right you just add China to the mix and you say you know it's China the US Germany Japan you know there you go whatever and the but, rest yeah but I, I guess you'd have to examine it in, in each in each point in time and how kind of um, you know the kind of share of the world economy, how it's broken down at different points in time, and there's been point, there's been periods in time. In 1945, um, I was think I was looking at this. I I can't remember exactly now, so I forget the reference. But 1945 was a point at which there was the greatest concentration of kind of wealth and economic activity in in certain countries. Right? It was like U.S. and Britain. Yeah, the U.S. was something like 50 percent of world GDP exactly. if memory serves. Yeah. yeah. So it's like totally legitimate to talk about the global system and really focus on only a few countries. Yeah, I mean. Alex is our kind of global south correspondent in oh, correspondent there. representative who speaks on behalf of all of the global south particularly the campesinos. I don't think you should write yourself out of the um the conversation um Alex but no my serious point was going to be like I wanted to to try and like s- summarize this um you know what is the di- what is the basic difference between Brenner and Origi in the way that Origi presents it and it seems to be that essentially Brenner's <clears throat> model is um, th- what's doing the explanatory work is the relationship between different capitalist powers or the, the contradiction between different capitals or that capital-capital relation. Whereas Arigi says, no, there's three things. There's relationship between different national capitals. There's relationship between capital and labor in each of those cases. And there's also these North-South relations. So it's it's difficult to... Um, to say that these other two things are not completely uh, are completely irrelevant, um, but equally, that's it. Seems like it's always easier to make the argument. Well, what about this other thing? And part of the reason why um, models have explanatory power is that they identify the most important aspects. Mm. Otherwise, it would just be a reproduction of reality, which would be too complex. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a bit on that kind of very abstract kind of conceptual point, um, quite quite torn but if i had to pick two of the three it would be capital capital relations and capital labor relations not north south relations i mean why i would yeah. have to pick two of the three i'm not sure that seems quite arbitrary but i'm imposing it myself no but i, so, but I agree with you i think he misses out the labor the labor thing i find Arigi's critique that he misses out the way that um rising wages squeeze profits that seems to be really important, which Brenner misses out because Brenner just goes, no, mm. capital can dribble that. Gra- capital can go, if wages start rising in the US in US industry, they can move to other sectors. And if not, they can just go and export production elsewhere. And th- you know that's that. And I think, mm, I'm not sure entirely. Yeah, but it's an even more fundamental than that. I mean, it's uh, Arigi's claim that you can't understand, you know, like I said, you can't understand the dynamic without um, understanding how it's partly driven by working class power. Whereas um, in the, um, you know, you don't have that dynamic. It's um, it's more working class organization is more a response to the downturn 
in, according to Arrighi, the long downturn of the late 19th century, where it's, it's reversed in the 20th century, working class power has a much more um, kind of catalytic effect. Um, anyway, um, I mean, from speaking for myself, I think I'm more sympathetic to Brenner's, um, you know, I think kind of Arrighi's third worldist instinct that you have to always account for the kind of majority of humanity. Um, I'm not, you know, you can dispute which, you know, what economic centers you want to include, but um, it doesn't seem to me to be an illegitimate move per se. And I would say it's been vindicated, you know, in kind of recent times, the simple kind of the, you know, the world historic um, nature of mass migration, I think, to the West indicates that you've got just a kind of... um, a real dismal collapse, I think, of state and society in so many places, um, uh, you know, kind of in Africa and the Middle East um, and outside of East Asia, basically, you know. Yeah. Um, and that seems to me to be world, just the sheer scale of it seems to me to be a world historic phenomenon that speaks to um, the lack of any kind of um, dynamic or process or um possibility of significant meaningful change in those societies that propels you know so many of their citizens abroad to um, seek to improve their lives um but anyway um it's something which again i think we'll come back to in the third section because this is a rigi building up i wanted to i wanted to conclude with a um a a kind of a broad um a broad question and one which goes back to um who has already mentioned goes back to quasimodo um, which is this idea of whether or not you can transplant hegemony from the national to the international stage and what the implications and ramifications are. And this is discussed by Arrighi on page 150. And I should say, can you? I mean, obviously, people do it all the time. Hegemony is kind of um, very easily um, discussed in international affairs, um, though obviously its origins lie in the in um, Quasimodo's account of the role that it plays, you, at the you can't just say that and not say, you know, you know, you're thinking you're being funny. Antony, people don't know who Zugubu, that is. Same to Gobu, um, and Antonio Gramsci, I think, is who Phil is referring to, and actually, he obviously, takes it from from Lenin, but we don't need to get into that. But no, I think, yeah, can you trans transplant? Well, what's involved? Not can you, yeah. I suppose, because people do. But what's involved? Um, in doing so, um, and I guess I, it's we might as well start with you, George, because um, you are the um, you are the resident expert. Um, I'm the the hegemon of the um, of the podcast. I wouldn't get that. I wouldn't get so, that far. I wouldn't um, get that far. Yeah, no. I, I guess it's the idea would be that the the class struggle or class, class relations within a within a state this partly determines how it acts in international relations or in fact, largely determined. So I think, I think this is an important insight. And I think people like Robert Cox, um, you might know more about this than I do, Phil, um, have, have made a lot of, of, I was gonna say a lot of hay, had a lot of publications, had a lot of influence, um, in essentially taking this, this national idea and, and making it, um, making it international. I think the, yeah, I mean, it, it does, it does introduce a level of another level of complexity, but I think having a model of the global of economy or of international relations, which doesn't take into account the contradiction between capital and labor seems not to be not right to me or to, to be missing something which is in, extremely important in determining how, how states do, um, do act. But Arigi doesn't 
explicitly says he doesn't use a Gramscian idea of hegemony. Instead, he has this um, additional power due to leadership. That's how he defines it. That's on page 149. So it's kind of like a, it's like a bonus. Like you get a, um, you get bonus points if you score enough tries in a rugby match. So it's like you get you get a, a, an added like I'm trying to I'm trying to think of another word for bonus. But yeah, you know, additional power. And this is, you know, he does construct the the international system in a specific way to kind of to to back this up. But I think the 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 way that you framed it, Phil, like there, how do you explain um the way that states act in kind of global in like world system terms or in global international political economy terms without having this idea of kind of national level class struggle, then you're presumably kind of putting a massive amount of importance on the states people and the kind of the leaders and that seems to be like <clears throat> um you know a kind of great great man or great person theory of history which is which is very limited i mean it's it's also the the fact i mean i'm adding to this is that in a domestic you know national situation you can have a sort of positive some situation where you have hegemony Right. I mean, this is what what Arigi says. You can have hegemony um, in which you know subordinate groups accept they're they're being dominated because it there might be an expansion as a whole. So you know the economy as a whole might grow. So kind of you know everyone gets better off, for example, or or a lot of a lot of groups get better off, even those who accept the hegemony of the leading group. Whereas in international affairs, it tends to be a zero sum game. So you know if you can have a state which is hegemonic, how is how can you have a situation where everyone is benefiting? So at the bottom of page 150, he says... But that's we, the US and the post-war period with Germany and Japan, right? Well, exactly. So certain... he, I mean, so Rigi argues that you can actually have that because it doesn't mean that every, the whole world system is going to get better, right? And it's going to improve for everybody. There's, everybody's going to have more power. But certain states or leading, you know, certain groups will, will have that um, under the aegis of someone else's leadership, Um so, yeah, I mean, he said just, you know, just a quote from 150, bottom of 150 says, um, you know, a crisis of hegemony is a situation in which the incumbent hegemonic state lacks the means or the will to continue leading the system of states in a direction that is widely perceived as expanding, not just its power, but the collective power of the system's dominant groups. Um, so, you know, not just like the U.S. is good for the U.S., but it's good for Germany, it's good for Japan and, you know, Western Europe as a whole, etc. That would be then a crisis of, of hegemony. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot to say on this. That's not how, how Gramsci uses. I don't want to be that, that Gramsci no, guy. It, but, no, but I mean, one of the things that Gramsci says about a crisis of hegemony, which I've been thinking about a bit recently, is how essentially, the, and this is, only applies in the national context, but the masses of people essentially kind of break away from um, the old ideologies. They they lose their, their grounding. So it's, I mean, it's an interest, I mean... That seems to me to be some to to capture something about how particularly British politics has has um, fared since since twenty sixteen. But anyway, this is a this is a a real side a real side point. But no, I I, I underlined exactly that same that same bit because it it sets up you know what I think is almost the the meat or one of the most interesting things about the whole book is like what constitutes U.S. hegemony like this economic model that he's building what are the consequences of its of its of its breakdown i think it's almost impossible today to say that it's not crumbling um and you know what does this mean as it seems seemingly china is going to take um a new place and i think that's um 
yeah, so I don't want to kind of pick holes in it and say, well, Gramsci used it in this way, Geo. Um, but yeah, um, it's there are some some points around how ideologies hold people together and 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 have some, um, I guess, some traction, which definitely seems to be relevant today to how the like ideas of the the new project for a new American century, as we talked about last time, or just the idea of America. Does this hold any like any traction at all today for anybody for Americans? Mm. I mean, well, according this is day after Thanksgiving, but for <laughs> the whole of the world, I don't know. The, just a gesture to something really contemporary, really quickly. I mean, you know, the contemporary scene is one in which Western Europe, particularly like its most important state economically, Germany, kind of deindustrializing and becoming ever more dependent and and subsidiary to the United States at a point of. U.S. hegemony seemingly declining. So, you know, it's not just like what de- America declines and the whole Western empire declines. Like actually, no, for, the, you know, the Western Europe becomes more attached to, to the United States in this period, more dependent on the United States um, at, a, at a point when the U.S. declines. So, you know, there's things which might be paradoxical on first view, but which are Well, it's just because right Germany's now. sinking more quickly. So it's holding <laughs> well, on to something which is sinking, but, you and know, more slowly. you could say... I mean, also, you know, like um, part of that, part of what seems to be evidence of the U.S.'s decline at the moment is it's in just its lack of industrial capacity to sustain both Ukraine and Israel as its two proxies at the moment. Um, and that would seem to count, you know, that would be more Team Brenner than Team Arigi, right? Because Arigi was kind of dismissive of the significance of industry um, at the center of his kind of... Um, you know, at the center of his analysis, whereas it's crucial to Brenner's analysis. And if the US is, you know, kind of, it can get all this capital, but it can't even spend it effectively to maintain an armaments industry to support proxies, let alone itself. Um, you know, that would also seem to complicate the picture a bit. I want to close by, um, you know, saying uh, to give Origi his credit. So on page 161, Belle Epoque is prelude to terminal crisis and bearing, you know, as Alex said at the beginning of the as the beginning of the episode, um, you know, Rigi published this on the eve of the great financial crash. Um, so the kind of peak point of our latter day or early 21st century Belle Epoque. And so if we date, if we date the end of the end of history to the financial crash of 2008, it would seem to be, you know, we've entered a period of terminal crisis that ends with the crumbling of US hegemony that's so evident, you know, in recent years, it would seem to be a vindication for, um, for Arigi's overall thesis, if not perhaps for every detail of it. But the answer to that will, I guess, uh, come in the next two episodes on the book. So thank you very much for sticking with us, listeners. Let and me, um, and I just wanted to say something Alex before, before to, Alex yeah, before, wants to duck in before, before we, we leave. No, just, just because it's, it's nice. This is a nice moment where the book's kind of opening out and we're trying to understand, we're trying to see what the, st- we're beginning to see what the stakes are of what's being argued here after a lot of kind of theory and history. Um, it's also very contemporary because Brenner is now the subject of a, of a kind of quite heated debate on the left, particularly the American left right now. Um, Brenner and uh, collaborator Diddle and Riley, who's been on this podcast before, published a piece last year in the New Left Review called Seven Theses on American Politics. Some of its arguments were re-raised by Dylan Riley in a, in a piece on, on the New Left Review blog, basically saying that all the Green New Deal idea um, is a kind of neo-Kautskyite attempt at industrial policy, which will only... Um, double down and, and uh, recapitulate the problems of industrial overcapacity globally. And that can only lead to war and conflict. And then you've had people arguing against that. You've had um, in, in Jacobin, 
um, Seth Ackerman arguing against that, saying, well, that's nonsense. We should still be able to pursue Green New Deal and industrial policy. Uh, Aaron Benenav, who's been on this podcast, who is a, an acolyte, I guess, or a follower of, of Brenner's, um, who are, kind of came in defending Brenner, but saying also that Ackerman is is coming at it the wrong way. Um, Adam Tooze has commented on it. There's a piece kind of resuming this, um, which is quite useful by Benjamin Fong um, in Damage, which is also worth checking out. Anyway, all of this is just to say that it, this is a kind of very live debate with some political consequences in terms of orientation to things like industrial policy, which are very of the moment. So it's not just like, okay, but who cares if you're Team Brenner or Team Origi? Actually, this is um, informing contemporary political debates right now. And maybe something we should we should actually dedicate an episode to that debate um, yeah, at a later be, point in time. I think that'd be good, and hopefully the Arigi, you know, the Sarigi um, series of episodes will set us up for that as well. So once again, uh, thank you, viewers. Thank you, listeners. We'll be finishing up um, Arigi's book over the next two episodes of uh, this year's Reading Club. Do join us for that. Over to you, Alex to um, to finish us up. No, that that that's it. You can uh, you can finish yourselves off. But uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. As always, uh, we really appreciate your appreciate your engagement and enthusiasm with uh, with the reading club, um, and you know taking time to go through what is a you know tough, um, often quite kind of tough works. Um, exhausting and and uh, but rich and hopefully you get something out of it we certainly do as I think we've already indicated so we look forward to spending more time with you doing this in the next couple of episodes and next year indeed catch you later bye bye